The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi, that's me, reveals how the world really does work. Thank you for being part of the show, and thank you, those of you who have done so much to help promote the show and familiarize others with it. Uh, there are so many new people that are with us every week, and, and that is entirely due to your work in, in that department. So I thank you very, very much indeed. Much appreciated. As we take a little look at the spirituality of money, here's the problem. Why is it that so many otherwise smart, intelligent, even educated people are convinced that money is evidence of moral malfeasance. That somehow or another, uh, they, they feel guilty about money. This is one of the things that drives liberal politics uh, because people who, uh, are, who feel enormous guilt about having money uh, are easy marks. They can easily be drawn to support dubious movements and uh, speculative uh, organizations whose purpose is, in essence, to undermine the freedom that a transparent market gives everybody. And I think everybody already realizes that in the, in the great divide between freedom and equality, uh, you, you kind of have to make a decision. There is a similar divide between freedom and security. If you want to provide people with security, you're going to have to diminish freedom. Why is that? Well, because providing freedom to A means restricting B's actions. Uh, it may be something as basic as... Uh, as a government deciding that B must yield some of the work of his sweat uh, in order to sustain A, right? This, this is part of a government's job is to provide security for people. That can only be done by taking money from somebody and giving it to somebody else. That's the only way it can be done because government cannot create money. Now, some of you have written to ask me about that question as well. Why, why do you say government can't create money? Well, government can print money. That is true. 
but uh, in so doing, it is actually stealing money from everybody because money doesn't come about when it is printed. Money comes about before it is printed, and the trick of a stable government is to make sure that no more money is printed than has been created in value by human economic interchanges and transactions. Now, it's not that easy to know how to do it. And one of the uh, great success stories is during the Victorian period and uh, well up into the early 20th century, uh, the, the British pound, which was the dominant currency of the day in much the same way the dollar is now, the, the, the British pound didn't change in value. It didn't get um, diminished. It didn't get cheapened. It wasn't inflated. Why? Well, because the Bank of England never printed more money than had been created by the economy. But wait, this is prior to communications. This is prior to telephones. How on earth did the British Empire, how is it possible that London, the Bank of England, was able to print money in accordance with how much productivity had taken place in Australia, in Canada, in South Africa, all and India, all the places that operated on the British pound sterling, and yet people relied on the pound much more than today they rely on the dollar. And there's a very big difference. And so how did the... Bank of England know when it was okay to print money and when they shouldn't? And the answer is a valuable insight into the nature of money. What did they do? Well, don't forget, back then, the pound was backed by gold. And so anybody who wanted to could exchange their paper currency for gold pieces of gold, or they could exchange their gold for currency. Gold is secure. You feel confident. It holds its value. It is what it is. Currency is a lot more convenient, right? It's very difficult to buy a milkshake if all you have are one-ounce gold coins because each one is worth, you know, say about $1,000 or so, depending on what the current price of, of gold is. But if you have a South African Krugerrand or a Canadian maple leaf coin, uh, each of which contains an ounce of gold, then you certainly have something of value and it will hold its value in, in those terms, whether, whether it holds its value better than investments in the stock market um, is not such a simple question. And so obviously I would never say to anybody to keep all their assets in gold. Of course not. But uh, some degree of security with some holding of gold, sure. Uh, but the trouble is that when you want to buy a milkshake, very difficult to do that with a pound, uh, with a with a gold coin. So what you would do is you'd go and take your gold coin and ask the bank to exchange it for uh, X number of pounds, however much the exchange rate was then. They'd give you the paper currency. You'd have 10 shilling notes, one pound notes, um, and, uh, and, and you could go about and take care of your daily business. But uh, how, did the, how did the Bank of England make sure that they were not uh, inflating currency, that they were printing the right amount? Very simple. Very simple. Uh, the Bank of England in the city of London 
And it's still called the city, by the way. It's still called the city of London, that area around Threadneedle Street where the Bank of England is. Um, there, there were a lot of uh, coffee shops. There were a lot of offices. There were places where merchants did business. They transacted deals. And these were merchants from uh, who had connections with all parts of the empire. Uh, some of them did business in, in India. Some had did business in Canada. Um, others were correspondents for businesses there. But a tremendous amount of information. And don't forget the telegraph. Um, the very first telegraph message was in May, 19, May 1844. And yet within only a very few years, uh, cross-transatlantic telegraph cables was, uh, were, were laid and information was being communicated by telegraph. And so people had a very strong sense in the city of what was going on. Now, when those people in the city of London would come to the bank and ex hand in their currency and ask for gold in exchange, that said, that said to the bank, hello, we, there must be too much currency out there. Uh, there is a feeling that the currency is losing its value. There's too much of it. And they stopped printing money because that was an indication that uh, too much had been printed compared to the economic productivity that had taken place not just in the United Kingdom but in the colonies of South Africa and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and India. And, uh, and then uh, they wouldn't, they, they'd hold the printing presses. And business would continue pretty soon eventually. Um, people wanting to do business needed currency they didn't have. And so they'd come and hand in their gold and ask for currency. That was a signal to the Bank of England to start up the presses again and go ahead and print currency. And that really served for 100 years as a very wonderful, reliable way of communicating information. Because that's really what it is. You know, Paul Johnson, he's a, a British historian whom I greatly admire. He wrote a book called The History, A History of the American People. Definitely, definitely worth. If, you, if you're interested in history and you want to get a, a, a clear picture, it's, the book is uh, seven, eight hundred pages, big book. But, uh, but uh, definitely, if, if you have an interest, it's, worth, it's, a, it's one of the books I'd, I'd say. If you are looking for a history book of America, that's a pretty good way to go. Anyway, one of the things he says very nicely in the book, uh, page 640, if you must know, he says, money is our oldest medium of systematic communication. See, that's right. You often hear people saying money is a medium of exchange. I, I much prefer what Paul Johnson said. Money is our oldest medium of systematic communication, allowing stable communities of productive people to exchange information about trustworthiness, value, productivity, and even need. Money represents the promise of one party to deliver goods or services to another on demand. It is ultimately not a material, but a spiritual matter. That's very interesting. Money is a spiritual matter, sure enough. Um, there was a Senate hearing in 1912, and um, it was conducted by a lawyer called Samuel Unter Untermeyer. And it was, uh, it was an assault on, on capitalism. It was an assault on the market. And um, Samuel Untermeyer had J.P. Morgan, the banker, in front of him in giving testimony. And... Uh, he insisted 
said Antemeyer, Samuel Antemeyer insisted uh, to Morgan that commercial credit is based entirely on property and money. And so people who have property and money can get credit. People who don't have property and money cannot. Hence, the system is rigged against poor people. Uh, Morgan explained that Antemeyer was wrong. He said character comes first, long before property and money. And um, a quote of Morgan's from the hearings um, on that day in 1912 was, A man I do not trust could not get money from me on all the bonds in Christendom. In other words, it is all about trust. And that's why one of the nation's founders was James Pollock. And uh, he was startlingly insightful, I think, when he insisted that the words in God we trust be inscribed on U.S. currency, not on the walls of churches, not on the covers of Bibles, on the currency. Very important point. And so if we don't understand the spiritual nature of money, then we are at a distinct handicap. For one thing, it's hard to understand how it is that so many bright people believe that having money is bad, that it proves something horrible. Essentially, that you are violating the principles of equality. And I'm going to explain just how it is coming back, why it is that th this fundamental misunderstanding causes so much damage. Uh, first of all, our website is rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, here is a, a nice book that I think you'll enjoy. What's nice about it is that uh, you don't need to set aside any sizable slice of time. Um, it's, uh, it's called Dear Rabbi and Susan, and it's a compendium of questions that have been asked to us. We've selected uh, the best questions and our answers that we gave, and you can page through it. You can look at topics. You can divide it by topic. You can take a look at, uh, you can just read casually. But it's, it's just a quick, uplifting, and, uh, and I think interesting insight into how ancient Jewish wisdom works in a very practical way. The book, um, Dear Rabbi and Susan, does not uh, include any questions on uh, the Bible. It doesn't, it doesn't answer questions about, well, this verse says that, and this verse says something else, so how do the two verses reconcile? We don't do that. Uh, neither does it answer questions about theology. Why? Well, because um, I've always explained that theology is all about what people think of God. And I'm just not interested. I'm really not that interested in what generations of people have thought about God. But what I am interested in is what God thinks about people. Now, that is far more interesting. That's not theology at all. That is Bible, that's ancient Jewish wisdom. So uh, take a look at uh, Dear Rabbi and Susan at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com, and I'll be right back with you in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's one perfect mattress, and it's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. 
Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how did it fit in there box? You just let it unfold and there you have it, one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed. Hassle-free. Casper is made in America and Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights free, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash rabbi. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being back on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, that's me, your rabbi, reveals how the world really works. And one way the world really works is to recognize that human beings have needs, just as we have needs for oxygen and for water, Uh, We also have needs that are intangible, and that's because we're not just bodies. We are souls as well. We have spiritual needs as well as we have physical needs. And while the physical needs, like oxygen and water, are perfectly obvious and elicit an instantaneous and uh, meaningful response, our spiritual needs are often camouflaged. And uh, there are many, many people who never discover what ails them you know if if you're short of oxygen you feel yourself becoming asphyxiated and you do everything you can to solve that problem the trouble is that if the spiritual needs we have are being withheld from you uh, it's not as if your body starts immediately pulling you towards that uh, commodity what happens is that you start manifesting the disease of spiritual stifling Uh, you start manifesting the problems of people who are not having their spiritual needs attended to. And I'm going to explain a whole lot more on that as we go along. So just remember that idea that, yes, we all do have spiritual needs as powerful as our needs for water and oxygen. And these needs take certain forms uh, that placate our spiritual yearnings. I'll come back to that. But first of all, let's talk for just a moment about Earth Day. All right, Earth Day started in 1970, and uh, the date was chosen of April the 22nd. Now, there was a Democratic senator from Wisconsin by the name of Gaylord Nelson who played a whole important role in that and who subsequently... Uh, has written and said, oh, people think my choosing of that day was because it was the birthday of, well, you and I both know, this is the birthday of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Uh, He was born in uh, 1870, and he died in 1924, and he was essentially the founder of uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, He was the person who, he didn't invent communism, neither did Karl Marx or Frederick Ingalls, uh, but uh, he took the idea of communism and realized it was something he could use uh, to self-aggrandize, to to build himself up and uh, to make his uh, ladder to prominence and uh, prosperity. So um, uh, uh, Gaylord Nelson wants us to believe that the date was, oh, just a casual 
uh, thing. Uh, let, let me tell, take you to Gaylord Nelson's book. He wrote a silly book called Beyond Earth Day, Fulfilling the Promise. And uh, here's what he said. I'm reading now, and I know it sounds uh, boring when I read, but I'll do my best to, to not have it that way. I usually don't like reading anything on the show because uh, the same reason I never like reading a speech. And I, I personally, I for one, when I see a speaker take a, a wad of notes out and lay them out on the podium, I find it very hard not to drift off to sleep or at very least to drift off to, into a daydream. Uh, somehow or another, when a person speaks extemporaneously, uh, it, it grants me a glimpse into his soul. That's exciting to get to know another person, right? It's one of the reasons that the biblical usage for sexual intercourse of to know somebody is not a euphemism. It's not just a polite way because the Bible doesn't want to say sexual intercourse, which it does in many places. But when it says uh, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, uh, it is introducing us to this idea that knowing another human being is about the biggest thrill it's possible for a person to get. And obviously getting to know a woman sexually is for a man an ultimate thrill, but even getting to know another human being non-sexually but through verbal intercourse, if you like, that also is an exciting thing. The minute somebody gives a speech by reading, you know, and this is something that a certain former president of the United States made a specialty of, just reading his speeches. As a matter of fact, uh, you can see numerous videos on YouTube that uh, show what he does when the teleprompter breaks, and he babbles incoherently for a few moments until they actually get it running once again. Uh, that's a bad sign, right? Either he's frightened to reveal his soul, uh, or <laughs> there's just not much there. That's another possibility. So uh, uh, reading speeches, always a bad idea. And on the show like this, uh, reading, again, all by way of explaining why I'm about to read something from Gaylord Nelson's book called Beyond Earth Day, Fulfilling the Promise, so you'll pardon me. Uh, he writes the following. I was satisfied that if we could tap into the environmental concerns of the general public and infuse the student anti-war energy into the environmental cause, we could generate a demonstration that would force this issue onto the national political agenda. It was a big gamble, but worth a try. Boring. At a September 1969 conference in Seattle, I announced that in the spring of 1970 there would be a nationwide grassroots demonstration on behalf of the environment, and I invited everyone to participate. The date, April the 22nd, was chosen because it was before the summer recess for grade schools and high schools, and it avoided exam time on college campuses. I believe the support of these groups would be critical to any successful demonstration on behalf of the environment. That turned out to be a good guess. The date aroused the suspicion of the conservative John Birch Society, however, which perceived some sinister communist plot was underway. Within a week of the announcement that April 22nd would be Earth Day, the Society charged that the event was Senator Nelson's ill-concealed attempt to honor the 100th birthday of uh, Vladimir Lenin. Um, anyways, all right. So um, he says, this coincidence of timing continued to pop up here and there. The day before the first Earth Day, the Los Angeles City Council adopted an Earth Day resolution by one vote over the objection of a member who argued against passing such a resolution on Lenin's birthday, um, and so on and so forth. And then he goes on, methinks the man doth protest too much, because he carries on for nearly a page on how 
uh, April 22nd being chosen as Earth Day was simply a coincidence. Look, um, I know that they didn't have Google and the Internet back in 1969, but they did have encyclopedias in every library. And they also had books called This Day in History, just as we have websites now, This Day in History. And you can Google April 22nd or go to This Day in History, whatever you want to do. Anywhere you look up April the 22nd, it will tell you Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, born April 22nd, 1870. The notion that you're going to set a nationwide demonstration for the environment uh, and you're going to select a day for this nationwide demonstration for the environment, and you're not even going to check to see if there might be something else happening on that day that you don't want to be associated. I just don't believe it. Uh, I, it's, it's simply not on. It's not a possibility. Uh, also, it's impossible that uh, they could not have known that in 1955, um, Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union, designated April the 22nd as the International Day for Celebrating Communism. It's not possible. Just not possible. So, um, uh, so you have to know that uh, I personally, I totally reject the notion that April the 22nd for Earth Day was selected with absolutely no notice whatsoever of the fact that it was a terribly important day for communism. Okay? N not a mistake. Really not a mistake. Um, so, um, uh, and again, as I said, it, even if somebody could completely unrealistically not discover, I mean, I don't believe that you can choose a date and not, look, people don't set uh, party dates without checking to see if there isn't something that happened on that day that, that could become uh, a mockery or a joke, you don't do that. We're a nationwide demonstration for the environment, they check the date. They know that Nikita Khrushchev made it a day of international uh, celebration of communism. They know that uh, it was the 100th birthday of, uh, uh, of uh, Lenin. They, they, they knew that very, very well indeed. So um, so there, in 1970, 100 years exactly to the day after the birth of uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, they created something called Earth Day. And um, I think what we should recognize that there are certain similarities. I don't think I'm going too far when I say that uh, when uh, communism arrived with the work of Lenin in Russia in 1917, uh, one of the very first things it did was to outlaw private property. Okay? There's a reason for that. Right? There's a reason that the ownership of property and money is vital for freedom and that if you are trying to create a communist tyranny, you have to prevent citizens from owning private property. Sure, uh, that's absolutely right. And under communism, uh, the state owns all property. This is true in, in, in Cuba. It was true in the Soviet Union. And, uh, and you could not own property. The only exception in the Soviet Union was when they had famines. They discovered that tiny little uh, privately owned um, food, uh, little t 
tiny uh, land holdings, little farms, produced disproportionate amounts of the of the food. Every state-owned farming enterprise failed and collapsed. These tiny, small number of uh, of family-owned uh, uh, little farms, they survived. They produced food. So the only exception exception was simply to stave off national starvation. Russia allowed a few of these small private farms to exist, but otherwise, people own every uh, the the state owns everything. Um, I should mention that uh, since April twenty second, nineteen seventy, uh, the government has gone way overboard in declaring millions and millions of acres of of, nas- of, of property into national monuments. So, in other words, land that could be bought by farmers, land that could be bought by private citizens, land that should be able to be purchased by Americans was made off limits. And, of course, this was to protect the environment, and everybody cheered, oh, how wonderful this was. And uh, the um, most recent... Uh, former president during his eight years uh, handed over or took truly millions upon millions of acres of private property and turned it into um, national owned property. Sometimes he did it to prevent drilling. Sometimes he did it to, uh, but basically the philosophy is the more land the government owns, the better off it is. Okay. The whole idea of the United States was the opposite, and we thrived and prospered precisely because of that. And so you should know that uh, if you take the the land mass of the United States, including Hawaii and Alaska, do you have any idea of what percentage the government owns of that? Government owns about, no, I'm not going to say about, 50%. Do you know how much that is? What possible reason it's not even all national parks by the way it's not as even as if we all have access we can go camping and hiking in these places no a lot of them are off off limits they're off limits to use of any kind to development of any kind and 50 uh, percent of the land of the united in the land of, of the united states america belongs to the government and all of this has happened the overwhelming majority of it has happened since 1970 Earth Day has helped to make this happen. Uh, you should know that uh, Congress continues to consider uh, funding large sums of money to make it possible for states to purchase even more property to put it off limits to private citizens. Um, don't forget there is something called the Fifth Amendment, which protects the right of citizens to own property. You know what the Founding Fathers thought of this. And the Fifth Amendment says that no private property may be taken for public use without just compensation. Uh, However, around the United States, government has taken private property. The Endangered Species Act has been uh, very, very damaging uh, on this. And many of the other acts, um, wetlands legislation has been appallingly damaging. This stuff is really, really bad because the philosophy of the environmental movement and the philosophy of totalitarian governments, they're very, very close. The connections are compelling. Uh, And there's no question about it that one of the great ways to undermine the economy of the United States of America is to deny its citizens the benefits of its natural resources. It's terrible. 
you should also know that um, over 30% of all federal laws and regulations, and I mean, you know how many federal laws and regulations, that, well, no, you don't, nobody does, but you know that it's huge. 30 plus 30 plus percent of all federal laws and regulations have to do with protecting the environment. They impact property ownership. They impact use of energy sources. Uh, enormous parts of the United States that have huge reserves of, of oil and coal and natural gas are off limits. It's very difficult today for a structure to be built without an environmental impact study being forced to be done. Um, on and on it goes. On and on it goes. Um, I, I don't want to even, I don't want to quote from another book, but uh, Al Gore, you might remember, wrote a book called Earth in the Balance. It is a piece of unadulterated bilge water. But um, uh, he does write in there, I, I quote, uh, the central organizing principle means that we must embark on an all-out effort to use every policy and program, every law and institution, every treaty and alliance, every tactic and strategy, every plan and course of action, to use, in short, every means to halt the destruction of the environment. Okay. Um, all right. Well, uh, this, this is bad stuff. I, I think you'll agree. This is really very, very bad stuff. Um, I should also mention that uh, Gaylord Nelson uh, speaks very explicitly about the idea that uh, the environment is more important than the economy. This is repeated again and again and again. The economy must be subservient to the environment. Folks, um, if you were a communist giant brain and you spent, 10 years in a think tank with people with 180 IQ to come up with the best way to damage the United States of America. You could not have come up with a better idea than the environmental movement, including climate change, and Earth Day, April the 22nd, 1970. I'll tell you a little bit more about this as we come back. But first of all, over to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, I will let you know that uh, in case you hadn't uh, realized by now, right, you may be tired, you may be listening only with half an ear, and perhaps you thought that my Infidelity Offset program uh, was for real. Maybe you actually were starting to write out a check uh, it goes without saying that it was nothing than a, uh, a weak attempt at farce and satire. Uh, I was, of course, mocking the whole carbon offset movement, um, how Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, well, all right, enough said. <laughs> he, is, he has become a high priest of environmentalism and uh, um, buys a lot of carbon offsets so he can use his private jet. Well, that's all I was trying to do, mock it. So, no, please do not send in any money. Do not go to my website to purchase infidelity offsets. Uh, there are none to be had. However, uh, I urge you to please, yes, go to my website and purchase a copy of Boost Your Income. 
Three Spiritual Strategies for Success and a copy of um, Connect for Success, uh, Prosperity Power, How to Connect for Success. And these will bring you a whole lot more benefit than infidelity offsets, I guarantee it. And uh, if you already have them or uh, if you know somebody who could use a complete reset of their financial plan for the rest of this year, then this would be a very inexpensive gift. Go ahead and get it. If you get the download, by the way, um, you know I really don't mind you, you sharing it uh, with, with folks. Um, I just don't. I, I, I want it to get out so uh, you won't find any uh, locks on it that prevent you sharing it with anyone else. You may feel free to go ahead and share it with your nearest and dearest. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just a moment as we take a deeper dive into the destructiveness of environmentalism. Don't go away. As if I have to tell you that. Do I really have to say don't go away? That's ridiculous. Of course not. You're not going anywhere, are you? You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. Coming up on the next program, we'll be live from Churchill Downs. Can I ask, how did you convince them who's gambling? I know. It's one of I my mean, best games Seriously, ever. you this got... This is a road trip to, uh, to end all road you got to teach me. Best. Although, we'll still be performing oh, tomorrow. Oh, yeah, totally. We'll still have the Friday uh-huh. leftovers. I think one of the Pussycat Dolls are going to be oh, joining yes, us. Oh, absolutely. I don't know what Chris Cruz is working on there, but there's something. And we can write all this off. The Morning Blaze. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody, and back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, I mentioned a little earlier, and I just want to remind you that uh, about a third, over 30% of all the rules and governmental regulations in the United States have to do with the environment. And uh, the act that makes all of that possible was called the Environmental the Environmental Protection Act and the agency that was started by executive order on the part of Richard Nixon. Now, I'm not saying that uh, Richard Nixon wanted to destroy the United States of America. He, he didn't, and uh, he, was a, he was a patriotic American. He, he had his flaws, but uh, he was a terrific president. He really was in many, many ways. I mean, let, let's, let's say that there were a lot of things he did very right. Uh, one of the things he did very wrong was an executive order that uh, passed the that created the agency, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, he did it as a dupe. He um, don't forget this happened in December 1970, the first Earth Day, to enormous hoopla, promoted by Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin, Democrat. And by the way, at the time, nobody said, how dare you use your Senate staff? How dare you raise money? How, how can you, as a sitting U.S. senator, how can you do a thing like that? Nobody even said it because it was such a clever cause that people just said, well, of course, it's a wonderful thing. Nobody questioned and nobody on Richard Nixon's staff said to him, Mr. President, uh, with respect, this may not be such a good idea. Earth Day, not necessarily in the interests of the United States of America. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, maybe not the best idea. Uh, one can, but pray that uh, President Donald Trump will severely clip the wings of the EPA. 
there has been so much uh, reduction in the freedom of Americans as a result of environmental laws that uh, it can only be good for much of that to be sunsetted and uh, much of it to be clipped away. Um, Nelson, again, Senator Gaylord Nelson, uh, said in these words, the bigger the population gets, the more serious the problems become. We have to address the population issue. The United Nations, with the United States supporting it, took the position in Cairo in 1994 that every country was responsible for stabilizing its own population. <laughs> yeah, like Cairo, Egypt is stabilizing its population, right? Anyway, it can be done, said Gaylord Nelson. It can be done, but in this country, it's phony to say, I'm for the environment, but not for limiting immigration. Isn't that beautiful? The father of American environmentalism, Senator Gaylord Nelson, was the one who he himself said, you've got, if you're for the environment, you have to oppose immigration. So uh, I am for the environment, and boy, do I oppose immigration. But wait a second. Um, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I must tell you that you've got to be aware of, of the kind of chicanery uh, pulled by the left. I was listening to National Public Radio uh, the other day, two days ago, and they ran a program on the benefits of immigration. And what they did is they listed all these wonderful companies founded by immigrants, including Google, by the way. And, and so I uh, quickly pulled out a, a pen and one of my index cards that are, is always in my upper left-hand pocket on my shirt. I hate shirts without pockets on the front there because that's where my index cards live. And uh, I quickly wrote down the names of every company that they listed. You see, this is why immigration benefits the United States of America. We wouldn't have these companies adding to the prosperity of the cows. Oh, wonderful. Uh, not a single one of those entrepreneurs was Muslim. Wouldn't you have thought that in just in the interests of intellectual honesty, shouldn't National Public Radio have said, we tried, but we couldn't find any companies around the United States that were worth talking about started by Muslims. To them, immigrants are immigrants. And why is that? Because they utterly and totally reject the notion that a person's religion shapes his outlook and his behavior. They wouldn't accept that. They regard religion as utterly insignificant. Who cares what a person's religion is? I mean, most people are secular. Most people don't have any religion. Those who do don't treat it seriously. That's what they think. And this is why they will not speak about Islamic terrorism, because that Islam is a religion. So they'll speak about uh, uh, immigrants, and they'll speak about people from uh, uh, Afghanistan, but never identifying by religion. Because, of course, nobody's behavior is shaped by religion. And the trouble is they are enormously impacted by Jewish influence, where the vast majority of Jews are not impacted by their faith. I've spoken about this before, and it's a, an enormous problem. It, it's something that, uh, as a rabbi, I, I do take as, as a personal failure that, that I have not done more to be able to change this. But, but the fact is that you would have thought that if somebody says, I'm Jewish, that this would say something about his belief system. In the same way that if somebody says, I'm a Christian, you know, you kind of 
get a basic idea that the person accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. I mean, that's not difficult, right? It's, it's more than likely the case. But if somebody says, I'm Jewish, you can literally draw zero conclusions about their belief system. They might even be an atheist. That's what's crazy. And because of Jewish influence in the culture, uh, the belief has grown that religion is insignificant and utterly irrelevant to whatever behavior or belief system a person might have. And so for that reason, National Public Radio felt very comfortable saying, oh, look, we found all these immigrant uh, started companies that are good for America, so we must let in all the immigrants who want to come to us from Syria and from Iraq and from Afghanistan and from Somalia. Sure, anyone who wants to come, because immigrants are good for this country, and they cannot say, wait a second, immigrants from India have been terrific for this country. Immigrants from Western Europe, German immigrants have been great for this country. But there is a problem with Muslim immigrants. All of them? No, of course not. But a very significant proportion of them. That means we need to stop and take a look. It's not all immigrants. It's Muslim immigrants. Well, uh, back in 1994, uh, no less an authority than Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin said, we've got to stop immigration. We must limit immigration if we're for the environment. <laughs> uh, by the way, Gaylord Nelson, all, I mean, again, the father of modern Earth Day, also rejected the idea that economic development should take precedence over environmental protection. Uh, to, uh, the way he put it was the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, not the other way around. Uh, and again, look, uh, if somebody was saying to me, well, look, I'm gasping for breath, I've got no water to drink, so obviously the environment has to come ahead of, of uh, eco economic development, uh, I say, yeah, sure, I agree, I understand. But for anyone who's not gasping for breath and anyone who has plenty of water to drink, the idea that economic development can be made subservient to a highly questionable philosophy, no. It's shocking that a man who was appointed to the United States Congress could use his resources on promoting this incredibly destructive concept. Um, when uh, uh, Gaylord Nelson is, is, tr is, is trying to sort of build up funding for Earth Day, uh, he writes again in his book, Beyond Earth Day, Fulfilling the Promise. When I planned the first Earth Day, only one major corporation contributed to our national effort, arm and hammer. Uh, corporate leadership there was far ahead of the times. He was such an idiot. He, didn't he know that arm and hammer was owned by the communist sympathizer arm and hammer? That's right. You can still go to Westwood in Los Angeles and on Wilshire Boulevard, just off Wilshire, you will see the arm and hammer art museum. Occidental Petroleum was a company owned by Arm and Hammer and uh, used as a vehicle for funding uh, problematic groups in the United States, particularly the anti-war movement from the KGB. Am I crazy? No, I'm not. But uh, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, it, it really warrants an entire show all of its own. But I should mention um, that... Um, uh, 
that the Gores, Al Gore and his dad, Al Gore Sr., uh, Tennessee senators and, uh, and a vice president, Al Gore Jr., that is, um, spoke about, extensively spoke about, um, we must transform society. We've got to centralize government control of land. I mean, these guys really believed that. And uh, it's not a coincidence that throughout his career, uh, Al Gore Sr. was supported financially to the tune of millions of dollars by who? Armand Hammer, the founder of Occidental Petroleum. And by the way, somebody who was known as a Soviet agent in the 1920s. No secret. Um, Hammer actually was awarded uh, a, 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 an award by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin as the Communist Party official path to the resources of American capitalism. He was the only American ever to receive one of the highest honors ever bestowed by the former Soviet Union. Uh, when um, Albert Gore Sr. was defeated in a re-election bid, I forget the year, uh, he actually became a very highly paid executive in, would you be shocked to hear, Occidental Petroleum? That's right, Arm & Hammer's company. The same company that gave Gaylord Nelson money for the first Earth Day. Coincidence? If you believe that, I am disappointed. Then it only can mean you've not been listening to this show for nearly long enough. Um, you should also know that uh, the Gores, Albert Gore Sr. and Jr., hosted Hammer. He was their personal guest. Armand Hammer was their guest at the inaugurations of both um, uh, Kennedy and Johnson. Um, Al Gore Sr. Um, literally navigated Armand Hammer's access to Libyan oil. And um, Al Gore Jr. was instrumental in enabling Occidental Petroleum to get hold of land formerly owned by the United States. Uh, oddly enough, for reasons that make perfect sense to me, the FBI files on Armand Hammer are sealed. And I'm not sure what it would take to access them. Anyway, that, uh, that gives you a little bit of, of an idea of the shenanigans going on behind the scenes. Earth Day 1970, environmentalism, yes, a genuinely a program to hurt America. And I'll tell you a little bit more as we delve more deeply into the destructiveness of environmentalism just as soon as we come back. Uh, for now... The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. If you have any questions, we have an Ask the Rabbi feature. And you can also go back and read hundreds of questions that, that people have asked us. They've always been questions having to do with real life. We don't answer theological questions. We don't answer biblical questions. Uh, we use a biblical lens to answer questions that people have about friendship, about faith, about family, about uh, money. And uh, all of that is in the Ask the Rabbi pages of the uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin com website. Uh, it's also a place where you can read um, back issues of uh, Thought Tools, of uh, Susan's Musings, and uh, it's a place you can send us a letter. You can also um, uh, please take a look and uh, you will read up and if it uh, pleases you, which I think you, it will, you need to buy yourself a copy 
uh, right away while the discount is still active of the uh, audio program Boost Your Income and the second audio program uh, Pro Connect for Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. Uh, it's good stuff. It's powerful stuff and very effective stuff. Uh, that's it for me for right now. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Back with you in just a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Yes, the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And the fatal and seductive allure of communism uh, is something that'll never change. It always has been a part of the human experience. It really has. And uh, those of you who are regular listeners have heard me talk about it. Uh, you may even already own a copy of The Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel, in which I explain how nine verses at the beginning of chapter 11 of Genesis reveal the deepest desires latent in the human soul. For what? Communism. That's right. It wasn't called communism back then, but uh, think of it as secular fundamentalism. That is the philosophy that produces the political system called communism. And uh, one of the things that uh, you also would probably know if you're a regular listener is that I recently conducted a Passover Freedom Conference uh, for uh, about 300 Jewish families who convened for a week in a hotel um, and conference center near Niagara Falls uh, on the Canadian side. And I think I spoke about the, uh, on the show, I think I, I spoke about the extraordinary grandeur of Niagara Falls, which I'd never seen before, and how overwhelmed I felt by this extraordinary display of, well, nature, right? God's nature? Well, that's part of the problem, of course. Um, I also was planning on bringing back from Canada with me a few boxes of 100-watt incandescent light bulbs. Now, because I don't want to publicly confess to any crime, uh, I'm not going to tell you whether I actually succeeded or failed in my quest. But uh, I will tell you that if I had space, I would also have brought back a proper flushing toilet or two and a few shower heads that didn't restrict the water flow. I would have done all of that. Um, I deeply resent the government passing a law that incandescent light bulbs cannot be sold in the United States of America. I believe that uh, if incandescent light bulbs are so much, excuse me, if uh, LED bulbs are so much better and so much more efficient, the market would have taken care of it, right? Uh, business people are not stupid. They would have started making them, leaving consumers like me free to make a choice. Would I rather spend 79 cents on an incandescent bulb that'll last for 1,500 hours 
and shed a warm, comfortable yellow glow, and that would work easily with inexpensive dimmers? Or would I like to spend uh, $9 to $15 for an LED or fluorescent bulb that needs a very expensive dimmer in order to operate and which throws a harsh, cold light that I do not find in the slightest bit attractive? Um, the market could have taken care of it. Government intrusion, just one more way in which environmental hysteria has enabled the government to diminish the freedoms of ordinary Americans. And my being unable, inc unable to purchase an incandescent light bulb, I assure you, is the least of the problems that environmentalism is causing America. Let me give you an example of how there is no limit to the insanity that will be able to be justified under this evil doctrine. Um, there are two scientists at Oregon State University. One's called Paul Murtau and uh, the other's Michael Slacks. And um, they released a study a few years ago called Reproduction and the Carbon Legacies of Individuals. So um, let me just make clear what they're saying. If you care about the environment, it's not enough to get rid of your incandescent light bulbs. No, you need to start restricting the number of children you have. One child is too many. you got to know, they say, and they warn very ominously, every human being is responsible for the future carbon emissions of his descendants. Whoa! How about every human being being responsible for the great inventions of his descendants, the great discoveries of his descendants, the wonderful human beings that his descendants become? No, no, you are responsible for the carbon emissions of your descendants. And uh, Murtau and Slick say um, uh, an American woman who is admirably environmental, they say they expect her to recycle, energy-efficient windows. Um, she drives a Prius and only very little. But by merely having two children, which, by the way, is a problem because that's below replacement level, uh, by only having two children, she will add nearly 40 times the amount of carbon dioxide emissions she had saved with all those lifestyle changes. The only way, they say, to save the planet is to tie your tubes. I'm, look, I couldn't make this stuff up. Um, the, um, there was a guy who was uh, a scientific advisor to the president. Um, a, a real, I'm sorry, a real idiot. A real idiot. His name was John Holdren. And um, he, too, said in 1973, 210 million Americans now is too many. And 280 million in 2040 is far too many. We have to encourage women to have fewer children. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty bad stuff. Um, in the British Medical Journal, okay, in this case they're talking not about American babies but about British babies, uh, and this is a medical journal for heaven's sake. This is not an environmental journal. In a medical journal, and it's a prestigious medical journal, to just give you an idea 
of how far this evil philosophy has percolated. A British med- the British Medical Journal carries an article, and if you're interested, by the way, it would have been in um, July 2009. Uh, they run an article that um, each new birth in the United Kingdom will result in 160 times more greenhouse gas emissions than a new birth in Ethiopia. So what they're saying is if any, and you've heard this said again, right? Well, you're trying to make us stop having babies here, but they're not limiting the number of babies in Ethiopia. You know, good point. Uh, And so this answers and says, no, uh, English babies will use 160 times more greenhouse gas emissions caused uh, than Ethiopian babies. British couples must be told that having fewer children is the simplest and biggest gift that anyone can make to a habitable planet. Uh, Britain must promote environmental ethics where having fewer children is just like having fewer patio heaters and fewer high-carbon cars. Uh, Look, this is pretty amazing. Round about... um, uh, in the 1970s, where you know, at the time when Earth Day was uh, being started, April 22nd, 1970, uh, there was back then also a lot of talk about too many babies. But uh, but right now, the um, the the focus is that an American mom who brings a new life into the world is a much bigger menace to the environment than a Bangladeshi mother who does this, and certainly any Islamic mother who brings new babies into the world, that's only good. But American mothers, no, you're threatening the planet. Uh, Okay, so um, you may as well just uh, begin to wrap yourself around the idea that environmentalism is pervasive, it's a destructive ideology, and it is very difficult extremely difficult uh, to, to combat. I, I, I admit this. To defeat the destruction of environmentalism is very, very challenging. Uh, but there's much more. Um, you've all heard the famous lie, have you not? 97% of scientists agree that climate change is a terrible threat and must be solved, otherwise it's going to cause untold calamities before the day after tomorrow. Right, you've all heard that, right? Um, Look, uh, you don't need me to tell you that science is not established by consensus or by vote. It just isn't. And, um, you know, there was a time where you could have said 97... By the way, the 97% figure is complete nonsense. But but even if 97% of scientists did... Do you know that in the closing years of the 1800s, closing years of the, um, of the 19th century, uh, the majority, overwhelming majority of scientists um, held that a certain model of the atom was correct? It turns out it was completely wrong. But I guarantee you not only 97% of scientists, but 100% of scientists thought that. And that was... Um, it was up till about 1900, because that was the year that the great Lord Kelvin, who was you know, the Lord Kelvin, I mean, the Kelvin temperature scale is named after him. He was a lord because of his scientific expertise. He said, 
Quote, and this is true, I mean, this he really did say, there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. And he said that while people still had the wrong idea of an atom. Namely, people still believed that an atom looked like a blueberry muffin, right, with uh, electrons scattered around like, uh, and protons scattered around like blueberries in the muffin. They had no idea yet of the orbital model of the atom, which we now believe to be true. So you could have said that not only Lord Kelvin, but nearly 100% of scientists believed something which only a few years later was going to be shattered by Albert Einstein, by Hermann Minkowski, and some of the others of uh, the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And, um, and so the notion that everything in science is up for debate, everything in science is up for re-examination and for challenge, except global warming, except climate change, except environmentalism, that is settled science. And um, I'm going to make the case that it's not science, but it's religion. And one of the proofs of it is that they've adopted the use of the word denial. They call them climate deniers, global warming deniers. That term deniers was traditionally used for heretics of religion, people who denied the omniscience of the Lord. They were deniers. And so, I mean, never before in the history of science has anybody who challenged an existing science theory be called a denier. On the contrary, when you challenge a popularly held theory, you are good. Real scientists turn to you and say, okay, go for it. Tell us what you think. Show us. Give us something replicable. Bring up an experiment that we can all do. But the exception, global warming. How dare you challenge it? And a number of scientific careers have been destroyed because people in professorships, people in prestigious positions at the Smithsonian would not sign on to this scam of environmentalism and climate change. They lost their jobs over this. So much for it being scientific. No, no, people are not in the slightest bit interested in science. This is all about religion, and we need to understand what and why, and I'm going to do my very best to tell you. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. My website is rabbidaniellappin.com, where you can go ahead right now and order yourself a copy of uh, Boost Your Income, which will do for you exactly what it says, and if your income's doing just fine, maybe you have a family member or a relative, maybe a friend who really could use to boost their income. You also want a copy of Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. In total, you're looking at three hours of instruction on finance, material you do need to hear more than once. Hence, I ask you to go ahead and download it, put it on your phone or your iPad, put it wherever you want so as you can hear it on a regular basis. That would be great. RabbiDanielLappin.com. The products are Boost Your Income and uh, uh, Prosperity Power. They are at, uh, they are they're always at a very affordable price. There's an even bigger discount on it right now, and uh, you can go ahead and make a difference in the financial life of your family or someone else's. So please go ahead and do that. Uh, it's a way of supporting my work as well as doing yourself a favor. How can I do anything other but make 
God smile, which is what I hope I'm doing. I also hope I make you smile just a little bit here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, which will resume in just a moment. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Welcome back, loyal listeners, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. That's right. And one of the ways the world really works is that uh, it's very hard to drive long distances. Uh, many of you commute. Sometimes you, uh, you take uh, road trip vacations. And uh, while you're in the car, in order to help stay awake and, and alert driving, uh, obviously, the best thing you should be doing is listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin audio programs. And two that I strongly endorse right now are Boost Your Income and the second one, Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. Uh, the first one is an hour. The second is about two hours, nearly three hours in total, uh, available on a special deal right now at RabbiDanielLappin.com. Why do I mention it? Because what happens if you've got a road trip coming up? And uh, you want something a little less um, heavy, something that you don't have to concentrate on quite as much. Well, I would recommend, first of all, I would recommend something which has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with our discussion, namely The Great Train Robbery, which is available in an audio book. It might even be available from your local library in, in the form of CDs. You know, borrow them, take them with you on the trip. Um, it's by Michael Crichton, the great writer, the late Michael Crichton, and uh, it's about a, a train robbery in England in uh, the 19th century, and um, you know, with a, with considerable literary license. But it is based on a true story. But it's a it's a gripping, beautifully done story, and it'll make the miles just zip by. Uh, but I mentioned that only in order to be able to tell you there's another book by Michael Crichton that is not only. Uh, even more thrilling, but actually useful because it's apropos of the topic we're discussing, uh, letting you know that, yes, environmentalism is not harmless. Uh, it's certainly not good. It's not even harmless. It's actually damaging and destructive. It is an evil pathology and, a, uh, and an incredibly destructive philosophy. Uh, Michael Crichton's book is called State of Fear. And, uh, you know, it's been out for a bunch of years. You shouldn't have any trouble getting a hold of it if you're interested. But it's a, uh, a really fast-moving sort of techno-political thriller. Uh, you know, global warming, it's all about global warming. Well, uh, polar ice caps melting and uh, calamitous messes and flooding and so on and so forth. Um, and, well, you know, the book uh, starts off with a murder of an American graduate studying ocean wave dynamics. 
and uh, this uh, some uh, a guy selling submarines is murdered, and uh, uh, there's another guy buying. And Michael Crichton's an absolute master of setting this kind of plot. And anyway, all the skullduggery going on is being coordinated by uh, a guy who's meant to be Ralph Nader. His name is Nick Drake in the book, but he's obviously Ralph Nader. Intense, single-minded, uh, and somewhat unhinged. Um, and he's the president of an organization called the National Environmental Resource Fund, etc., etc. Et and uh, um, I, I, I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but... Uh, there's a scientist in it, an MIT scientist, and um, uh, people get murdered, and, um, uh, and it's it, it really has a lot uh, to recommend it. I I sort of want to encourage you to read it or, or listen to it when you're driving, uh, without telling you too much about it. But uh, essentially, what the book is saying is environmentalism has nothing to do with science. It is an intense, fanatical belief system. It's a religion. It's not based on fact. It's based on faith. And, uh, and Michael Crichton had a very strong grip on, on the scientific data and reality. And, uh, and he, he talks about it. I mean, you'll, you'll come across the Sierra Club and the Union of Concerned Scientists. And you'll come across all, all the people in one form or another you've been reading about for years. And uh, uh, in the book, for instance, the scientist, the MIT scientist, Dr. Kenner, uh, correctly notes that Greenland's ice cap is in no danger of melting away. Uh, by the way, it's well known that Greenland's average temperatures have been falling at about the rate of 2 degrees centigrade per decade, which is quite a lot. It's getting colder, not warmer. Nothing is melting. Uh, as far as the southern pole is concerned, Temperatures throughout Antarctica have been falling for over 50 years. Ice has been accumulating rather than melting. What about all those pictures of shrinking ice with dying polar bears? All fake, all bogus. Um, how about all the low-lying islands in the Pacific that are being flooded by rising sea levels? No rise in sea level at all. There's evidence of a fall in sea level over the past 20 years. Um, global average temperatures, which is uh, a key part of the whole book of a State of Fear, uh, planet been warming up at 0 0.08 degrees Celsius every 10 years. Arithmetic shows that uh, with this trend, the planet will rise by 0 0.8 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. That's, that's not even one degree. Uh, that compares with an increase of 0 0.6 degrees during the entire 20th century. So no catastrophe at all. Um, in fact, Mr. Crichton writes about the uselessness of the stupid Kyoto Protocols. Anyways, um, it's, it's useful to know the stuff. The, the, the book is fact-based, um, and uh, it's, it's facts that can help you defeat the inevitable arguments and discussions you will encounter as you get people truly angry when you deny climate change, and you will. People won't debate you and discuss it with you. They won't look at you as an informed citizen who's posing a legitimate scientific inquiry. You are evil by challenging this. That's how you know you're talking about a faith not science. 
And uh, uh, by the way, he also speaks in the book quite correctly that one of the biggest tragedies of the 20th century was banning DDT, which was the best defense against malaria-carrying mosquitoes. They reckon about 50 million people had died from malaria unnecessarily because DDT was banned for no reason at all other than this environmental hysteria. Uh, the power line scare. Okay, this was during the 80s. They spoke about the dangers of cancer that come from power lines. Totally untrue, completely debunked. Uh, The country spent billions of dollars and tremendous loss of property values for no reason other than this religion. So um, uh, on it goes. And uh, it's... Facts are simply not on the side of these folks, but that doesn't matter because they are dangerous fanatics. They are not scientists. They don't care about science. They care about an agenda, and the agenda is one that hurts the United States, although they won't say that. They think this is – it'll help. By the way, you'll also hear nonsensical stories about how if only we will aggressively promote uh, alternative – Energy sources will bring prosperity to the country. That's not true. Uh, the cost to the country now, because of the insane, uh, hysterical, hysterical uh, building of windmills and solar voltaic stuff, the cost is enormous. You can figure it out. You don't need to be an economist. It's very simple. If this stuff was uh, economically viable, if it didn't cost money and made money, business would be doing it all on its own. And that's why the government has to give enormous subsidies to people who buy Tesla cars and enormous subsidies to people who put windmills or uh, photovoltaic cells on their properties. Uh, Look, we're talking about a religion. You can call it eco-theology. And don't forget that until recently it was all about global warming. And it's now climate change. And you understand the advantages, right? And number one, any occurrence of unusually cold weather is just as much evidence for their worries as warm weather is. So climate change is a brilliant idea. And the truth is climate is always changing, so they must be right, right? Climate change is a problem. Just look around you. Isn't the climate changing? So, um, uh, by the way, it, it, you know, many of you probably can remember the, um, uh, the, the Ice Age scares, the coming Ice Age. This was heavily promoted in the United Kingdom, but it was also in this country, and uh, we're talking about the 70s here. And, um, and on it was going. You know, everything's cooling off. Uh, we're going to head into an ice age. It didn't matter that there was no evidence. Faith is a belief that people hold to with no evidence. Right? That's what faith is. Right? I have, I have no evidence that can prove unequivocally to any human being that God is a reality. I don't believe he is. I know he is. But I can't prove it to you, not in the way we speak of a conventional proof. Ordinarily, I should be able to prove something to you within a few minutes or maybe an hour. To prove the existence of God takes years. Okay, so it's not accepted as proof. So I'm willing to accept that faith means a belief without evidence. And... um, Science is exactly the opposite. Science is based on factual analysis. Um, Skepticism is the highest duty of the scientist. Blind faith is an unpardonable sin. 
and global warming, climate change, environmentalism, it's all blind faith. That's why anyone who questions it is a denier. And uh, you've got to know that uh, atheism is just as much of a faith as theism, right? If somebody says I'm an agnostic, I just don't know. Maybe God is there, maybe he isn't. I can respect that. But atheism is just as much a faith as uh, Judaism or Christianity is, right? And so to be a, uh, an obsessive atheist is, is irrational. It's crazy. Um, the uh, okay, so I, I, I'm just I'm I'm looking at the clock um, because there's a there's a limit to how much time. You know what I think? I think I'm going to let me let me break the segment here, and we'll do one other short segment as we we wrap this topic up for today. Okay, it's obviously uh, not going to be finished, but at least it it gives you something to work on uh, when I urge you to help. Once and for all, let's try and defeat the destructive dogma of environmentalism. Uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, I, I always insist that your, your, uh, before you change the country, before you get involved in politics, before you try and become a congressman, before you try and do any of those things, uh, you need to take care of your own finances. And the way to do that is by increasing your revenue. Obviously, you've got to diminish debt, you've got to invest wisely, but above all, increase revenue. That's one of the reasons I'm opposed to retiring. There's no reason to stop making money. It's a good thing, and uh, last week's podcast explained just why that is. But uh, for now, to help you do so, two audio programs on special discount on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Do us both a favor and get yourself boost your income. That's about an hour teaching, and uh, the second one is Prosperity, Power, Connect for Success. It's about a two-hour program, and uh, it's something, by the way, you need to hear more than once because it's not, an, it's not as if this is a set of information you've got to get, right? It's like learning unarmed combats like judo or jiu-jitsu or karate. You can't just read a book and think you can do it. Uh, you've got to, over and over again, you've got to absorb it, you've got to practice it again and again and again, so that it becomes part of you, so as when a bad guy sticks a gun in your uh, spine and asks for your money, you know exactly what to do intuitively, you don't have to think back to what chapter it was that you read it in. Uh, for the same reason I make this material available, discounted right now, on an audio program that you can download, have it with you right away, and start listening to more than once so that you can absorb it and so that you start acting intuitively in your business relationships rather than having to try and remember something from a book. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just one moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the Chris Salcedo Show. I know it's crazy passing a law to force liberals to follow the law. The first law in our nation's history to ban sanctuary cities. It's out of the legislature and now in the hands of the Texas governor. Will this protection for U.S. citizens be signed? And just how long do you think it'll take left-wingers to file a lawsuit standing up for the alleged rights of illegal immigrant felons in the United States of America? The Chris Salcedo Show. Weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. The reason that your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, the reason I 
utterly and completely reject the destructive dogma of environmentalism, climate change, etc., etc., um, is firstly the facts. Uh, the more you delve into the facts, uh, the more obvious it is that they're being manipulated. And secondly, the sheer dishonesty on the other side. It's really easy to see, and, uh, and I do see it, and I, uh, I finally also understand the motivation. I get why they're doing it. I see what the agenda is. And uh, the notion that this is objective science and they're just following where the evidence leads, not true at all. They are manipulating and massaging and maneuvering the so-called evidence to come up with a result that says this needs bigger government, more government power and control, more international government and control. These folks just love the United Nations. And uh, so um, you've got to understand that uh, I mean, global th – this whole climate change phenomenon – is really nothing but a, a crusade for more governmental control on every part of life. By the way, as I said earlier, including reproduction. I told you about what's happening in America and England. Um, how's about Australia? The Medical Journal of Australia uh, in 2006, end of 2006, a guy called uh, Professor Barry Walters says that Australia must impose a baby levy of $5,000. Um, you have to pay $5,000 whenever you have a child, followed by an annual tax of $800 per child on every Australian family with more than two children. That's what he proposes. He says, every newborn baby in Australia represents a major source of greenhouse gas uh, for an average of 80 years, not just by breathing, but by the profligate consumption of resources typical of our society. I mean, just listen to the suicidal self-hatred from Professor Walters, uh, childbearing is unfriendly behavior for the environment. Um, it, it's funny, though, because Australia's uh, replacement rate, uh, its fertility rate is like well below 2% anyway, so I don't quite know what he, what he thinks he's doing. But um, look, uh, the, I, I told you in Britain, uh, th there's even more going on there. There's something called the Optimum Population Trust. And um, they also speak about the energy consumption. Again, consumption of energy, by the way, is an old religious theme. Uh, and I've spoken about that in an earlier podcast. Uh, Prometheus in Greek legend stood as the uh, foundation of contemporary environmental views of energy. Namely, it's not to be used. Standing in sharp contrast to the Judeo view of energy, which is a, it is a gift from God. You choose which one makes more sense. A, um, um, how about Californians for population stabilization? <laughs> what, what an organization is that? Uh, global warming is a very serious problem, they say, but it's a subset of the overpopulation problem. Um, too, the problem isn't just too many people, but it's too many Americans. Uh, that, that's how these people talk. Uh, uh, the Huffington Post in 2000, 2007 had an article by Dave Johnson, um, and he writes, let me quote you from this. I, I couldn't believe this stuff. Uh, One solution to the crisis of a heating up globe is for people to stop having so many babies. 
We've already used up the fisheries. The cattle being raised to feed so many meat eaters is as big a problem as the cars we're all driving. Um, so, you know, <laughs> what does he want us to do? Um, the Sierra Club, by the way, they got loads of stuff on their website. The population explosion has severely disturbed the ecological relationships between human beings and the environment. Um uh, in recognition of the growing magnitude of this conservation issue, the Sierra Club supports a greatly increased program of education on the need for population control. Right? They like controlling us, the left. You thought the Sierra Club was just helpful for people who like hiking in the outdoors. No, they have an agenda. They're part of this whole thing. Um, uh, National Park Service, by the way had a uh, biologist, an employee of the government, National Park Service, uh, quoted in the Los Angeles Times in 1989. Let me quote you his words. Human happiness and certainly human fecundity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. I know social scientists who remind me that people are part of nature, but that isn't true. We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon the earth. Until such time as humans should decide to rejoin nature, some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along. You get it? And a government employee hopes for people to die from a virus so the planet can be saved. I mean, you've got to know what this stuff is all about. How about that great hero Jacques Cousteau? I mean, I love the ocean. I love boating. I love skin diving, scuba diving. Uh, but Jacques Cousteau wrote in 1991, again, easy to find, quote, In order to stabilize world population, we must eliminate 350,000 people a day. It's a horrible thing to say, but it's just as bad not to say it. It's unbelievable. Jacques Cousteau didn't say exactly how he wants to wipe out a, a third of a million of people a day. Um, look, these guys, uh, the, the environmentalists, make preposterous predictions and uh, they love to cause panic, and they don't tell you what their real intentions are. Uh, Al Gore, uh, okay, again, um, when he got it, that stupid Nobel Peace Prize that Obama also got, uh, his, his, this is from his speech, we have begun to wage war on the earth itself. Our trashing of the ozone layer will cause sea levels to rise by 20 feet in this century. It's incredible stuff. Uh, the uh, uh, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times goes on and on and on about uh, frozen sea ice in the Arctic Circle is vanishing. Okay, It's not true. It's simply not true. Um, Brazil's weather center, it's called Metsal, uh, states that the Arctic ice cap is within 1% of the winter norm and uh, ice on the southern polar ice cap has grown substantially compared to last year. The vanishing polar bear? Not true! It's simply not true. Um, Co William Gray of Colorado State University uh, is a guy who believes the Earth will actually start to cool within the next 10 years. Uh, Neil Frank, who used to be a director of the National Hurricane Center, calls global warming a hoax. So please don't think we're not alone in rejecting this dangerous nonsense. Uh, Richard Linzen, L-I-N-D-Z-E-N, is a professor of meteorolo meteorology, meteorology at MIT, right, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in, in Boston, near Boston. Uh, he says Europe was far warmer in the Middle Ages than it is today. But in the 17th century, it was much colder. 
the Thames used to freeze over in London in the winter, right? The earth changes its temperatures. It warms and cools in cycles. Uh, by the way, the number of polar bears, 60 years ago they estimated there were about 5,000 polar bears. Now, 25,000. <laughs> um, Greenland, the temperature in Greenland is lower now than it was in 1940. Um, what's it to say about all this stuff? Um, I, I, you, can, you know, you can find the stuff as easy as I could. I just wanted to gather together a bunch of it for the purpose of the show to just let you know that, please, I'm not a lone lunatic when I tell you that the whole climate change movement is a fraud. Uh, I, I'm simply not, uh, I'm not alone at all. And uh, just, just look out for them now and don't take any of the stuff uh, in, on faith it is not science. It is a religion. It really is. And um, uh, you've got to know that they are truly trying to hurt the West. They are trying to hurt America. And, and there is an entire agenda here that we have to understand. And we have to know what they really uh, are planning to do with us. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, Paul, t a respect for nature, a theory of environmental ethics. Um, he, sp he speaks about the need to uh, for a lot of people to die. Uh, we have no problem in principle with humans reducing their numbers by killing one another. It's an excellent way of making humans extinct, uh, says one organization here. It, it's yeah, it, th this stuff is pretty grotesque, I have to tell you. Um, Anyways, there's, there's more of it than I have time to, uh, to, to even tell you about today. But I, I just want to wrap up by, by saying this stuff has been going on for a long time. Um, the, the Bible in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 5, You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their idolatrous trees. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 21, you shall not plant an idolatrous tree near the altar of the Lord thy God. In other words, uh, Deuteronomy is pointing out that people do have an instinctive desire to worship trees. Isn't that the situation now? What's recycling all about? Why, does, why, why are they on about recycling? You know why? Because paper uses up trees. So what? Plant trees and harvest them. So what? They don't want trees to die. They worship trees. It's irrational, but that's what's really going on. Um, there's a guy called uh, Sir James Fraser, wrote a book um, at the end of the 19th century. The book was, was published around about 1900. Uh, it's called The Golden Bough, 12 volumes. And uh, it's a book I purchased and keep because it shows how many of the old religions and cults of humanity uh, are rooted in idolatry, in other words, in a rejection of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His book, The Golden Bough, um, speaks about how sacred trees were common among ancient Germans. Uh, tree worship, he, these are his words, tree worship is hardly extinct among their descendants at the present day. He wrote that in 1900. I could say it true today. The Green Party in Germany worships trees. There's nothing changed. Uh, this is something built into us. We all have a need, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, just as we have a need for water and air, we have a need 
to believe in something. Once you reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, once you reject a biblical vision, uh, the odds are that sooner or later you will adopt a pantheistic religious vision, a, a worship of nature. It's kind of interesting that at the beginning of Genesis, uh, the uh, uh, God speaks about the creation of everything, but nowhere does it say he created the environment or he created nature. In fact, the word nature in Hebrew, hateva, doesn't even exist in anywhere in the five books of Moses because as soon as you treat all the details of nature, the rivers and the mountains and the animals and the trees and the sunflowers and everything else, once you wrap it all up and you call it nature or the environment, you are setting yourself up for worship. And that's why um, Maimonides, one of the, the great transmitters of ancient Jewish wisdom, um, lived uh, 1135 to just after 1204, I think. Uh, Maimonides writes about how in the time of Abraham, the reason that Abraham was attacked and threatened and assaulted was precisely because he challenged the pantheism of the day, nature worship. Nature worship and environmentalism, exactly the same thing, excepting the power that we have given the idolaters today uh, to s strip our freedoms and threaten our lifestyles. That is far more dangerous today than it was in Abraham's time. But, uh, but that was what was going on. You've got to recognize environmentalism as a faith. Uh, it possesses an irrational hatred of heretics. Um, it's uh, utterly indifferent to cost and sacrifice, all right, just the same way as religious Jews and religious Christians um, follow the dictates of our faiths. We don't worry about how much it costs. We don't worry about the sacrifices involved. That's exactly how environmentalists feel. Doesn't matter what the cost is. Doesn't matter what the sacrifice. By the way, they love forming congregations, don't they? And uh, they also appoint high priests, the people who teach everyone else the, the beliefs and doctrines of the faith of environmentalism. It also seeks converts by very aggressive proselytizing and harsh treatment of heretics. And it has its Yom Kippur, it has its, its special day of atonement, its special holy day of the year. That's right, Earth Day, 22nd of, uh, of, uh, of uh, April 1970 was the very first one, the birthday of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, and that brings us full cycle and uh, as far as we can go today. Have I got much more to tell you about this? About another two hours worth, I would say, at least, but um, not going to be doing it for now. To your great relief, I am certain. Meanwhile, thank you for listening. Thank you for passing the word, and, and please do more of that as well. Just keep getting the word out on this podcast. Uh, I appreciate it. It'll be good for you. It lets me do a better show, and uh, it's good for the folks who uh, who enjoy it. People who don't enjoy it won't listen to it. No problem. But no harm in letting people know about it. Do that, and I appreciate it. My website, rabbidaniellappin.com, the products, the resources available to you on special discount now, two audio programs, a shorter one called Boost Your Income, a longer one called Prosperity Power. Go to rabbidaniellappin.com, and you'll be able to read about them there and go ahead and simply get them for you or for somebody else. And uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. Until we are together again next week, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I hope that you have a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless you. 
You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio.